this week's TripCast, we'll talk about the deadly shooting in El Paso, Dennis Bonning's ongoing quandary in the House, and the texodus of GOP lawmakers in the U.S. House. But before we do, a thank you from our TripCast sponsors. Texas State Technical College. Texas State Technical College is the solution to the skills gap in Texas. Find out more at tstc.edu. And Methodist Healthcare Ministries. Methodist Healthcare Ministries is dedicated to creating access to healthcare for uninsured and low-income families in South Texas through healthcare services, advocacy, and strategic grant making. Learn more at mhm.org. Do I have to talk to you in there Hello and welcome to the Wednesday, August 7th edition of the Texas Tribune Tribcast. I'm Matthew Watkins, politics editor at the Trib, and joining me this week are Alexa Ura, demographics reporter, politics reporter Cassie Pollock, and politics reporter Patrick Svitek. For those watching us live, we'll be taking questions real-time via Facebook and Twitter, so send them your way using the hashtag TribCast. Let's go ahead and get started. Um, Our first topic today is the tragic uh, weekend in Texas. Over the weekend, a man walked into a Walmart in El Paso after driving 600 miles from Allen and opened fire, killing 22 people and injuring more than two dozen more. Minutes before his rampage, authorities believe he posted a racist manifesto describing a Hispanic invasion of Texas. This has prompted a range of responses from state and federal leaders, and as we speak, the Texas's big three of Dennis Bonin, Greg Abbott, and Dan Patrick are meeting with lawmakers in El Paso. Um, I, we'll talk about the political response in a little bit, but first, uh, I want to talk to you, Alexa. You were there in El Paso in the hours after this. Can you tell us kind of what you saw in, in the city? Yeah, I mean, I think in a lot of ways, the scene in El Paso was sort of what we've become too accustomed to after mass shootings of a grieving community. Um, There were vigils throughout the weekend. They started setting up sort of a informal memorial near the Walmart where this happened. Um, But unlike a lot of those mass shootings, there was also the added element of sort of making sense of the racist manifesto that fueled this and how people were feeling unsafe in their own communities um, because El Paso is a majority Hispanic city. Um, 80% of its residents are Hispanic. It's a bicultural city. It, you know, you can barely even see the border between El Paso and Ciudad Juarez from a distance. And so I think people in El Paso and really Hispanics throughout the state uh, sort of spent those first few hours and I think still are trying to sort of figure out what comes after this and how you're supposed to feel and whether anyone's safe, honestly. I think that was the sort of undertone to all of this was people were unsure about whether they were safe and whether they were going to be targeted because of the color of their skin. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, whenever something like this happens, the the state's leaders, the nation's leaders kind of convene. They they have their, their statements, uh, their immediate reactions to the scene. Patrick, you kind of covered that a little bit over the weekend. Can you, can you tell us what we saw from the state leaders? Yeah, I think one thing that stood out, and this is just, I know for a lot of people, it's not going far enough, but just if you look at how they've reacted in the past, one thing that was different was how, frankly, at least a couple Texas Republican leaders spoke about uh, the role of of race um, or the apparent racial motive in this. Uh, You had the land commissioner, George P. Bush, I think was the 
first one to really forcefully make this argument. He put out a, a statement the night that it happened and uh, kind of linked it to what he described as a, a rise in white terrorism um, and continued to use that term in a statement. Um, Ted Cruz the next morning put out a statement, I think that called uh, the shooting a act of a heinous act of uh, terrorism and white supremacy. Um, again, this is, you know, for a lot of folks, it's obvious, uh, given what you laid out in the, in the manifesto that was apparently linked to this uh, gunman. Um, but just given how in the past we've had some Texas Republican leaders, I think, who've, um, you know, tiptoed around those, those issues or uh, how those issues may interact with these shootings, um, both in Texas and outside Texas, I thought it was a little notable. Uh, but again, obviously, people are, there are a lot of people out there that are going to be demanding more from them, um, not just, you know, identifying what is obvious to, to so many in terms of the, the racial motive of the shooter. Well, and I think it was interesting that obviously both Bush and Cruz are Hispanic um, and are the only Hispanic statewide officials other than the courts, I believe. Um, and I think, you know, the fact that it is the obvious um, has been, it's despite that it's been interesting to see that so far Abbott and Dan Patrick, the lieutenant governor, haven't actually stated that, right? They haven't actually talked about the white supremacy about it. I think Patrick on one morning show um, said that this was a hate crime toward immigrants, but for the most part, they've been talking about mental illness and video games and social media. And so despite the what felt like a unique response from Bush and Cruz, you haven't actually seen that from the other leaders. Right. And, and of course, none of them have talked about the president's potential role in, in creating an environment through his, his language and actions for, for a shooting like this to be made possible. Um, uh, you know, I think uh, Beto O'Rourke, you know, has was asked in, in an interview over the weekend or a number of interviews what he thought about, you know, Ted Cruz and George P. Bush speaking so frankly about the role of race. And, and O'Rourke said, you know, this is great, but they need to take it a step further and they need to link it to the, the president. And, you know, obviously there's there's going to be some disagreement there in terms of uh, how Republicans <laughs> view that. Um, but that is obviously one shortcoming uh, in terms of the rhetoric that they used, at least in the eyes of Democrats. Sure. And and I wanted to kind of ask about that rhetoric. You know, we've, um, uh, we've, we've talked uh, in the aftermath of this about the um, idea of describing the situation at the border as an invasion. Um, that Those are words that obviously the Trump campaign has used in the past. Um, those are words that uh, uh, Dan Patrick has used. Um, is there any indication of kind of rethinking that that language? Is there any kind of pulling back from from how we're going to describe that in the, in the days since this? I mean, I think that requires the acknowledgement that the language is problematic, right? And I and I don't know that we're quite there yet. As, as at least I have not seen any indication. Dan Patrick has been someone who was saying this loudly probably before Donald Trump was, right? It was the 2014 election. It was a primary for lieutenant governor, and he said it on debate stages. He said it in ads. He said it in interviews. I mean, this this was not new for him, and it's it was sort of a compelling image just now as this meeting with the big, big Three started because you have an entire Hispanic delegation sitting across from someone who used the same word that the gunman used in this manifesto, and whether they call him out on that or ask him to think about that, I don't know, but I would be surprised because I do think it requires an implicit acknowledgement or explicit acknowledgement that this was wrong. 
Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, I mean, clearly we haven't seen, uh, you know, an open acknowledgement yet from Republican leaders that that rhetoric is dangerous. Um, but just on the politics of it, I think we have, from at least some self-aware and intellectually honest Republicans dating back to the 2018 election cycle, you know, I have heard some, you know, and you do get a sense that heading into this next election cycle, you know, there there is just as a political matter, um, you know, discussion about whether this is this is really the right the right path to holding on to Republican majorities in Texas. I mean, right before the midterms, um, nationally, you had presidents spreading this similar rhetoric as it relates to this the caravan at the border. You saw that seep into some Texas races in the midterms, and it didn't seem to really move the needle. I mean, it, it, it may have done more damage to to Republican candidates who embraced it versus those who didn't. Um, and so, I, I think that. I mean, it's something as a, as a political matter, uh, you know, that they also have to consider as well if this is the direction they want to go heading into 2020. Yeah, I think what this weekend sadly proved, though, is that, you know, when we were talking about 2014, when Dan Patrick was saying this, I remember talking to Hispanic Republicans who said, this doesn't help, right? This is the party that is struggling to reach out to Hispanic voters, and this doesn't help. But this weekend proved that it's not just about politics, right? It's also deadly and that that might be something to be considered moving forward. Sure. Sure. The, you know, the other big kind of Texas politician that we've seen a lot of, uh, in the aftermath of this shooting is Beto O'Rourke, obviously from El Paso. Can you describe kind of what his presence has been in in the aftermath? Yeah, he's been, uh, omnipresent. Um, he, you know, I think as soon as he caught word, uh, that a shooting had taken place in El Paso, his, his hometown, obviously, uh, he left the campaign trail in Nevada. He was appearing at a candidate forum, uh, in Las Vegas. Um, and he's been home ever since then. And we just learned this morning that he's canceled a trip to, uh, Iowa this weekend to continue to stay in El Paso through the weekend. Um, and you know, while, while in El Paso, as I just alluded to, I mean, he's been everywhere. He's been you know, visiting with victims and their families at the hospital. He's been donating blood. He's been appearing at uh, memorial events. Um, he's going to be appearing at a you know an event this afternoon that's about the same time as as the president's visit. Um, and he's been you know uh, on on TV, been doing uh, I think he on, on the Sunday shows he was on like five four or five Sunday shows. Uh, he's been omnipresent on TV as well. Um, and you know. Just, I think that, uh, you know, people are, you know, within the context of the presidential race, people, I think, are seeing him uh, in in a real kind of uh, strong position whenever he can highlight, you know, his roots on the border, um, the fact uh, that his pride for his hometown, um, and also, you know, his ability to kind of confront Trump and his rhetoric. I think that's a strong position for him to be in uh, politically. You know, the, whenever one of these shootings happens, the other thing that comes up is guns. Um, we've we've seen this happen a little bit again, uh, particularly with uh, the U.S. senators' comments coming out of a meeting in El Paso right before we sat down. Uh, Alexa and Patrick, you both watched that. What did, what do we take away from what Cornyn and Cruz said? Um, I mean, I think there. I think in light of the president's comments earlier this week about red flag laws, it feels like they may feel like they have some at least political cover to sort of pursue that as a possible solution here. Um, And John Cornyn sort of mentioned it as something he was looking into and considering how much of that actually becomes law 
I think is still unclear, especially after that was proposed in Texas after the tragic shooting in Santa Fe. Um, and that didn't actually go anywhere during the last session. So I, you know, I think there are going to be things that are going to be tossed around both at the state and federal level. I am not quite sure that we'll actually see anything come of it yet. Yeah, Cassie, I mean, we saw this right in the last legislative session. Red flags were brought up by the governor, maybe not necessarily an expression of support, but right. at least the idea of looking into it, and it didn't really go anywhere. Right, right. I think maybe Patrick even wrote just a spot story on that when that happened. You know, it was a very quick... Uh, Abbott, you know, includes the suggestion or, you know, suggests that red flag laws could be explored and, you know, quickly uh, the lieutenant governor of Texas and uh, a number of just prominent, you know, conservative grassroots Tea Party-esque leaders uh, were quickly, uh, you know, pulling out their phones and, and making sure that they were making their opposition to such a thing clear. And, and that seemed to kind of be the end of the, the line on that conversation, at least for the time being. Yep. So I don't know if that appetite has changed in light of everything that's happened recently. Uh, I don't know if Patrick. Uh, I mean, policy-wise, that does seem like a you know a strong consensus position to maybe start with. Um, if you're if you're real if you're being uh, realistic about what can actually get done. I mean, I'm not declaring it as you know like it's, <laughs> it's going to happen right now, but I mean that may be the place to start right now. Um, if you're a Democrat looking to, you know, really force a, a serious policy conversation. I mean, yeah, you, I think you have to be, I, I think Democrats are sort of going into this trying to be realistic about what they can accomplish with this Republican leadership. Um, obviously, the Democrats are working to flip the Texas House, but I think uh, as things exist now, there's a sense that they need to figure out what can be accomplished, what will what can they actually bring back home to help people feel safe? Um, and the fact that there's even, I think, conversation about a possible consensus on red flags, it, it's probably something they find encouraging going into this meeting. Sure. And well, as, as I said earlier, the meeting is going on right now. Uh, we'll, we'll clearly continue to follow this story and probably have more on our website uh, this afternoon and in the coming days. In the meantime, let's uh, jump to topic number two. Uh, the craziness surrounding House Speaker Dennis Bonin and Michael Quinn Sullivan continues. Uh, I was looking, last time we were here, uh, we didn't even know that uh, the infamous June 12th meeting between the conservative firebrand and the House Speaker um, had been recorded. We didn't know that that had happened. We found it out pretty much soon after the podcast. Um, since then, uh, that recording has been listened to by a handful of Republican lawmakers and no members of the press, unfortunately for us. Um, but I thought the person who recorded it is a member of the press. Oh, well, yes, of course. <laughs> That's up for, up for debate, yeah. right, right? You know, they, they do not, as of now, have House uh, media credentials. Correct. Um, so, Cassie, bring us up to date. What's going on here? All right, I'm going to try to fit this all into one breath. Uh, right, so, you know, as of where we left things last week, you know, soon thereafter, I think that evening, uh, Michael Quinn Sullivan, CEO of Empower Texans, uh, revealed that he had secretly recorded the meeting with House Speaker Dennis Bonin and Dustin Burroughs, a Lubbock Republican, who also happens to chair the House GOP caucus. Um, I think later that night, uh, you know, a number of uh, Republicans had uh, listened to the recording and including, you know, one on this alleged 10-member uh, politically or political target list and 
And, you know, they just kind of told it like it is. They went public with details of what they heard in this hour-plus-long recording, uh, you know, said that basically every every allegation that Sullivan had made up until that point largely, uh, you know, that the recording largely confirmed that. And, um, you know, so obviously in the time since then, uh, members... Republican members have continued to go uh, listen to this recording. Some have come public, uh, you know, uh, gone public with details. I think the most uh, credible um, or maybe, you know, person who uh, has the most authority to speak on this, at least, is Tan Parker, who announced yesterday that he had listened to the recording. And, you know, Tan Parker, uh, obviously not thought to be, you know, financially tied to Empower Texans, which was kind of a question mark that uh, we were asking ourselves just as accounts kept coming in. Um, And he's also a former chair of the House GOP caucus. And, you know, he had had a pretty strongly worded statement out there uh, saying, you know, this is uh, really crazy, uh, you know, disparaging comments. This is not like in line with the bylaws of our caucus or the Republican Party of Texas. Um, So that's, you know, that storylines continue to play out. Uh, Another uh, thing that's popped up is the speaker has issued an an apology yesterday. He uh, sent an email to House members apologizing, uh, not explicitly for this alleged target list or for the alleged uh, quid pro quo about House media credentials, but for the disparaging comments that were made uh, in this meeting. Um, And soon thereafter, the two House Democrats who had uh, been, uh, again, allegedly subject to these uh, comments uh, announced that they had accepted the speaker's apology. So that's kind of where we're at. Uh, (laughs) Hoping I I didn't miss anything too uh, large, but uh, yeah, so... I don't. I don't know what happens from here. I don't think anybody knows what happens from here. Um, yeah. yeah, I, I mean, I think it, the it's just to watch this play out has been fascinating because say what you will about whether Michael Quinsella is a reporter, but as from a political operative standpoint, it's you know you allege this meeting happened, you get Bonin to deny it, then you say, well, actually, I have audio, and then there's a response to that, a demand for releasing the audio, and then people get to listen to the audio, and that starts leaking, and then eventually it ends with an apology a week later for things that weren't even brought up the first time around, I think, in, in his initial emails. And it's really put Bonin in a position where I think some of his credibility with his members are might be at risk, right? Depending on yeah. what actually is on the recording that none of us have yeah. heard. And you saw kind of some movement, you know, we can call it, you know, a counteroffensive whatever uh, on Twitter play out last night where some of Bonin's, you know, earliest supporters and definitely, uh, you know, some of his top allies in, in the house just kind of came, came to Twitter and, you know, <laughs> Uh, released very similar statements saying, you know, great move by the speaker, House should move on, you know, this is a great step towards doing that, you know, thanks for issuing this apology. Uh, You know, but some some House members are uh, still very much on the, uh, you know, expressing skepticism about the whole thing and, you know, why has it taken the speaker three times to have to weigh in on this and why do we still have, uh, you know, members either on that alleged list uh, or, you know, just in in the chamber uh, still, you know, in a sense raising the alarm on what's happening here. Um, Yeah, I mean, it seems like it's really like where does... Oh, here, actually, let me ask this question from uh, a a reader named April uh, who asks... Is Bonin's speakership truly at risk here? I think some would like uh, to definitely put that out there. Uh, I think uh, 
Spitek, tell me if I'm wrong on this, but I think two House Republicans have already called for, uh, you know, the, the speaker to resign. Last night, uh, Phil Stevenson, a Republican, uh, told his local newspaper that he had listened to the recording. And, you know, he said that certainly the honorable thing to do here is is for the speaker to resign. Um, I don't know if that's gotten the traction that uh, some may have, say, some may would like for it to yeah. at this point. But, you know, I think there's also just, you know, taking a couple steps back here, a, a Everybody's largely in this holding pattern, right? We we don't have uh, the full unedited version of this recording that multiple members have uh, listened to to kind of refer back to as proof or evidence uh, to really back up these allegations. And uh, yeah, I don't think Bonin is out of the woods. I know that he and the people who were tweeting last night would like <laughs> to think that and just kind of uh, you know wash their hands of this, but. Um, I think there's still more that we need to to learn and, and know before we can even adequately answer the, that question, honestly, of, of whether his speakership is, is truly in trouble. Um, I don't think there's been, you know, uh, widespread enough, you know, there's two people who've talked about him resigning, two House Republicans. I don't think there's been widespread enough public sentiment like that to say that his speakership is in trouble. Um, but again, I think that it's it, we're just a few steps back from walking up to the line of, of answering to that answering that question right now. Um, you know, and the, I think the audio, uh, you know, the audio coming out would be the next big chapter in this. Um, obviously, if the, you know, <laughs> speaking about defining someone as, as a journalist, <laughs> if the Tribune were, were sitting on uh, newsworthy content like this, uh, well, we would not be sitting on it. That's it would right. be it would be released or handled and, and disseminated responsibly. Uh, that hasn't happened yet. Um, and of course, you know, it's become clear at this point that Bonin uh, was not at all forthcoming in his initial denial of this. But you also have to question at this point, why would Empowered Texans not want this full audio to be out there? Well, I, I do wonder whether Sullivan is being very strategic in this and letting Bonin kind of twist on the line here. I think like Oh of course. The, yeah. That's totally the strategy. And and if you if you first disclose this and don't give any indication that you have a recording, then does he deny it? You know, how much is your how much is he like testing the credibility of Bonin here by what is he gonna say to these speakers not knowing the full extent of whether there's a recording and thing like things like that, um, it has really been interesting to watch. It's also just been interesting to watch kind of the sentiment of the house here. I mean, on the night that it became clear that there was a recording and people started listening to it, we were hearing from these lawmakers who had listened to it and saying it's really bad. And we we're all kind of looking at each other going, this looks really bad for Bonin. Then it felt like there was a little bit of a pause there and people saying, well, all these lawmakers either have a bone to pick with Bonin or they are tied to empower the Texans. Like how credibly can we, can we look at this? Then the Tan Parker statement comes out, but that comes out right around the same time that the Bonin apology comes out that's received well. Bonin puts out this joint statement with the Democrat who's named in the tape. It really feels like every, every couple hours there's a different twist here. And ultimately, we're not going to know what this means for Bonin until we yeah. hear the tape. I think one thing, and I was reminding myself of this this morning, is, you know, yeah, we saw everything play out on Twitter yesterday. We saw the joint statements. We saw the the similar statements of support for the speaker. But uh, a vast majority of the chamber, which is comprised of 150 members, haven't weighed in publicly on this. So, uh, you know, I imagine, and my read of that is that they want to just withhold judgment, at least publicly, uh, you know, they, they don't want to be caught taking a stand and then have the audio come out and have to completely pivot 180 degrees on this. Yeah, I think, yeah. I think most, it's, it's fair to say that, you know, through their silence, 
most House Republicans, and by most, I mean, you know, at least a majority, um, don't have an incentive to speak out on this, yeah. a personal stake in this, or an ins personal incentive to speak out on this, short of reacting to audio whenever it's released. Um, yeah. You know, and I think that that, for now, may be Bonin's saving grace in that there is, a, you may want to call it apathy, you may want to call it disinterest, but you don't have a critical mass of House Republicans right now who have any incentive to either go listen to the audio or if they do listen to it, to speak out in a, in a really colorful or public way like Tan Parker did or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think... The, the responses on Twitter yesterday sort of came in a wave, but I, I don't think that that offers too much of security to Bonin, right? You have people who are accepting his apology for saying things they don't know he said and haven't heard him say. And the people who are accepting the apology are people who weren't on, no, were not on the list and people who are sort of top lieutenants of Bonin. And so I, I don't, despite sort of the like public display of apology, I don't know, actually know how far that gets him with the entire chamber and even within his caucus. Yeah, I think addressing the, the, the reader question of is his speakership truly at risk? I think this, that as Patrick, you put it well, he's not out of the woods yet. At the same time, like, I don't think we need to be thinking about this being an imminent risk until we start hearing more public opposition to him. Yeah, um, and there, there hasn't, you know, at least from what we have been able to see, there hasn't been much of like an organized effort to, by a large number of House members, to change the leadership of the House at this point. Uh, d one more question from Donna, which is, has Michael Quinn Sullivan lost all access to leadership now that the secret recordings are... Are possible. I don't know how much of an in he may have had in the, yeah. in, think, in the first place, um, but clearly Bonin, you know, accepted a meeting with him, chose to have a meeting with him, which yeah. now he, he admits was a stupid mistake yeah. or whatever. I think, and I think um, the Tribune's Emma Platt offered about this, but kind of the, the irony here, if you just, again, take a couple steps back, get out of this rabbit hole that we're, we're currently in, I've certainly, you know, way deep in it. You know, at, by the end of session, uh, Sullivan and Empire Texans and, you know, the Freedom Caucus, which has up until this point just kind of been closely aligned with that group. You know, a lot of people thought that they had, uh, you know, not come out on top. Uh, you know, a lot of their priorities that they had either pushed or opposed had either passed or failed, not in the way that they had wanted it to. And so there was just a whole lot of, you know, is, has Empire Texans hit a new low in terms of its, uh, you know, not necessarily credibility, but just influence, right? Uh, there's always kind of, I think, been um, a healthy dose of skepticism cast at the group just over the years. And and so now, you know, uh, I don't think you can say that anymore. Uh, and just for no other reason other than, uh, you know, they have the full recording of this meeting. And if they want to release it, it's going to, uh, by all appearances, happen on their timeline. Yeah, like it or not, Michael Quinn Sullivan has a lot of power right now. And yeah. I, a lot we're just kind of watching to see what what he does next. Okay, let's move on to the last topic. Um, any other week, this might be the first topic we discuss, but uh, this week we're, we'll have to get through it pretty quickly. Um, Democrats have termed it the Texodus. Um, in recent weeks, four GOP U.S. House members from Texas, Pete Olson, Mike Conway, Kenny Marchant, and Will Hurd have announced their retirements. Um, I'd say the reaction to this has pretty much run the entire spectrum from some people saying this is actually good news for Republicans to people saying <laughs> this is a sign that Texas is turning blue. You know, this is a sign that Texas is competitive. Patrick, which one is it? 
Yeah, not good news for Republicans. Um, <laughs> just put that out there. I mean, while it's true that, you know, in some of these open seats, there's a chance that they may be able to nominate someone who is uh, more dynamic and more stronger of a candidate than the incumbents who are retiring were or would have been if they had run for reelection again. Uh, anytime you have an open seat um, that, you know, I think moves the uh, seat more into the competitive uh, column, especially when you have Democratic uh, candidates already running in these districts who are already very well established and very strong on their own um, and who also may have clearer primaries. Uh, so yeah, not, not good news. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Three of four, three of these four seats were kind of democratic targets already. Correct. And so yeah. not having an heard Olson and Marchin. Yep, yeah, that's right. What about just the, should we read anything into the reasons? Like, is this a sign of something either in the Republican party or what it means to be in Congress or about Texas that, that this many people are leaving at this point? Yeah, I mean, you have a blend of potential reasons here. Obviously, one of them is 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 the fact that they were staring down some pretty competitive races uh, this next election cycle. Um, but you also just have life in the minority, which is is not fun. Um, in the case of Mike Conaway, again, who is not among those being targeted, he sits in a very safe Republican district. Um, you know, he had term limited out as the top Republican uh, on, on the committee that he sat on. I'm, I'm blanking right now on the, on the committee name. Um, and so that certainly factored into his decision. And he even cited that as he was announcing his retirement. So there are a number of factors here. Um, but of, of course, three out of four of these guys were, were staring down very competitive, potentially very competitive races in 2020. And I think from a redistricting standpoint, the fact that these districts are now considered more competitive than they would have been if the Republican incumbent stayed is a pretty big deal. I think, you know, CD23, Will Hurd's district, if I had to put money on it, is, is going to go Democrat next time around. But when you think, and, you know, the West Texas district that's being vacated while still a safely Republican seat is probably underpopulated. And when it comes to redrawing, the new person in that seat is going to probably have less sway with the Texas legislators who are going to be drawing up that district. And so, and even, and if those other competitive seats do flip, Republicans will no longer have incumbency as the reason they can point to for their changes, right? You can't use race, but you can say, well, we're trying to protect an incumbent. And they will no longer have that if those seats actually flip. And I think the lack of a Republican incumbent in those seats will make that even more of a risk going into redistricting. Mm -hmm. We have a, a reader, uh, Deli, who would like to know um, your thoughts, particularly on the TX24 race, the Marchant seat. Um, how do you see that kind of shaping up now that, that he's out of there? Yeah, e even before he announced his retirement, he had a very crowded Democratic primary, even in, in earlier this cycle. Uh, some of the Democratic candidates there are uh, Kim Olson, who ran for agriculture commissioner uh, last cycle, Candace Valenzuela, local uh, school board member. Um, you have some folks, uh, you have the nominee for Texas 24 last time, Jan McDowell. Those are just a few of them. Uh, please don't attack me for not <laughs> listing every single candidate, please. Uh, <laughs> um, and so, you know, Kim Olson was the top fundraiser uh, in that district uh, last quarter. She was able to raise a substantial amount of money after releasing a kind of introductory bi 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 biographical video. I think she raised like $300,000 that quarter. Um, I wouldn't be surprised 
potentially to see maybe more candidates get in that race now that it's an open seat and it looks even more flippable than it than it was before. Um, but that's that's one of these Democratic primaries for a targeted seat that's going to take a little while to sort out. Is going to remain probably crowded at least through the end of this year. Um, it's different in Will Hurd's seat. We have Gina Ortiz Jones, who almost unseated him last time, is running again, is the front runner as of now, uh, and also in the Olson seat where you have. Uh, the guy who almost who came pretty close to him last time, Shri Preston Kalkarni, mm-hmm. running again, is the front runner in the primary. Uh, not totally clear of a path for him, um, but more of an obvious kind of uh, you know consensus choice in that race for the time being. And what are we seeing on the Republican side of potential candidates there? Yeah, so far there haven't been a lot of um, besides Beth Van Dyne, uh, the former Irving mayor and, and HUD uh, official. Uh, announcing for Marchant's seat within 24 hours of his retirement announcement. We haven't seen a lot of Republicans rush out of the gates um, to, to fill up these now open seat Republican primaries, uh, but it'll be fascinating. That's one of the most interesting things to me this cycle will be um, which Republican candidates step forward for these open seat congressional primaries and, and how they run because they're going to, you know, Republicans this cycle in Texas uh, can't mess around in their primaries, to put it lightly, like, like they have in the past because these, these open seat primaries are for districts that are going to be competitive in the fall. And so you need to be, unlike, you know, in the past, Texas Republicans really need to be thinking hard in the primary about who they're putting forward for the general election. And they just, given the political landscape, that has not had to be a top of mind concern in, in primaries in the past, even yep. for open seats. Yep. Okay, last question really fast. Uh, do we see any more retirements before filing? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. yeah, I think that, you know, the uh, one thing that's interesting is that there are, so there are, you had Olson, Hurd, and Marchant. They were on the DCCC's uh, target list. Uh, along with three other incumbents. And so now the attention has turned to those three other incumbents, Mike McCall, John Carter, and Chip Roy. Um, you know, Chip Roy is a freshman, by all appearances is running again. There's been a little more attention on McCall and Carter. Uh, both of them have sent out tweets over the past 24 hours trying to kind of dispel retirement rumors saying that they're fully committed to, or at least suggesting that they're fully committed to running again. Uh, and so we'll see where that goes. Um, this may be the end of retirements within that that target list. There could be, uh, I think, congressional Republican uh, retirements outside of that target list. But I think for now, it looks like this may be it among the, the vulnerable uh, Republicans. But I'm, I'm proven wrong quite a lot. So All right. Well, uh, we'll keep an eye on that as well. Uh, That wraps it up for us this week. Um, Thank you to Texas State Technical College and Methodist Healthcare Ministries. Thank you to Spoon for providing our uh, theme music. Uh, And thank you to Patrick, Alexa, Cassie, uh, Bobby, and Michael Ray, our producers. And we'll see you all next week.